Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Listen to amazing and bizarre science infuse into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition we'll feature dragons, astronauts and surveillance. But first up, here's the news. Not a zombie. New Scientist reports that patient R has lost chunks of tissue in three regions of his brain that should have made him a zombie from a viral infection. But he still has a strong sense of self. Previous neurological imaging studies had suggested that three regions of the brain, the insular cortex, anterior cingulate cortex, and the medial prefrontal cortex, are critical for self-awareness and being conscious. David Rudruff, at the University of Iowa in Iowa City, led the study of patient R. According to the models based on neuroimaging, said Rudruff, patients with no insular cortex should be like zombies. Interacting with patient R made it clear he was no zombie. Rudruff's team confirmed this by checking whether he could recognise himself in photographs and by performing the tickle test, based on the observation that you can't tickle yourself. They concluded that many aspects of R's self-awareness remained unaffected. Now, R does have severe amnesia, which prevents him from learning new information, and he struggles with social interaction. Rudruff speculates that the mind might be more like a virtual machine, running on distributed computers with brain resources allocated in a flexible manner. This would explain how sometimes people with brain damage can sometimes adapt. A commercial quantum computer has correctly solved a protein folding problem. The quantum computer in question is made by D-Wave of Burnaby, British Columbia, Canada. Their quantum computers use 128 superconducting quantum bits, or qubits. Chemists at Harvard University worked with D-Wave to find the lowest energy configuration of a very small protein. Proteins are believed to naturally fold into the lowest energy shape. Researchers looked at the problem in two dimensions, meaning there were four possible directions that each protein fold could take, and used two quantum bits, qubits, to represent each of the four folds. 0, 0 for down, 0, 1 for right, 1, 0 for left, and 1, 1 for up. Like in the old analog computers, the trick to calculating the energy required for a protein to take on a particular sequence of folds is to arrange the qubits so that the lowest energy state of the quantum system corresponds to the lowest energy state of the protein. The D-Wave team managed to do this, but only for a very simple protein, consisting of just six amino acids. The researchers had to break the problem into parts that could be processed separately by the quantum computer and combine them at the end. In the best of all possible worlds, the D-Wave quantum computer would be very close to zero degrees Kelvin, but this is almost impossible to achieve. D-Wave instead ran the experiment repeatedly, slightly above zero, in hope of reaching the lowest energy state. Due to these higher temperatures, the calculation got the right answer only 13 times after 10,000 attempts. 
In comparison, while digital computers can easily run algorithms to find the lowest energy state, they sometimes get their answer wrong, as the algorithms sometimes give answers that seem the lowest energy state, but aren't. Quantum computers solving real problems are like dancing bears. It's not how well the bear dances, but that the bear dances at all. 700 terabytes have been stored in a gram of DNA. George Church and Sri Kasuri treat DNA as just another digital storage device. Instead of binary data being encoded as magnetic regions on a hard drive platter, strands of DNA that store 96 bits are synthesized, which each of the four bases, TGAC, representing a binary value, where TNG are 1 and ASC are 0. To read the data stored in the DNA, you sequence it and convert each of the TGAC bases back into binary. To help with the sequencing, each strand of DNA has a 19-bit address block at the start. This means a whole vat of DNA can be sequenced out of order and then sorted into usable data using the addressing bits. DNA has properties that make it desirable as a storage medium. You can store one bit per base, and a base is only a few atoms large. You can store it in a beaker in three dimensions, rather than two dimensions on a hard disk, and it's very stable. Whereas all the other bleeding edge storage mediums need to be kept in near zero vacuums. DNA can survive for hundreds of thousands of years in a box in your garage. While it took years for the original Human Genome Project to analyse a single human genome, with 3 billion DNA base pairs, modern lab equipment with microfluidic chips can do it in hours. So Church and Kazuri's DNA storage isn't fast, but it's fast enough for very long-term archival use. Church and Kazuri have stored around 700 kilobytes of data in their DNA, which is Church's latest book, and they made 70 billion copies of the book, totaling 44 petabytes of data. If the entirety of human knowledge, every book, every uttered word and funny cat video could be stored in a few hundred kilos of DNA, well, it might be possible to record everything. Data retention and surveillance, anyone? It's possible to store data in the DNA of living cells, though only for a short time. Storing data in your skin might be a way of transferring data securely. The work is published in the journal Science as Next Generation Digital Information Storage in DNA. Neil Armstrong, the first man to land on the moon, has died aged 82. The astronaut died after having bypass surgery on his heart. Armstrong commanded the Apollo 11 spacecraft that landed on the moon on July 20th, 1969. President Kennedy set the deadline in May 1961, after cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin beat the Americans to be the first man in orbit. And when Neil Armstrong first stepped down from the lunar lander, he said... I'm going to step off the limb now. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. But he claimed that he was certain that what he'd really said was, that's one small step for a man and one giant leap for mankind, which would make more sense. Given the difficulty in both landing on the moon 
and getting the words back to earth, we can forgive whoever made the mistake. In those first few moments on the moon, during the climax of a heated space race with the Soviet Union, Armstrong stopped in what he called a tender moment, and left some time to commemorate NASA astronauts and Soviet cosmonauts who died in action. Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin spent nearly three hours walking on the moon's surface, collecting samples, conducting experiments and taking photographs. At the age of 16, Neil Armstrong was licensed to fly before he got his driver's license. He was one of seven pilots to fly the X-15 rocket plane and unintentionally set a distance record on his second to last flight. The small aircraft bounced off the atmosphere and carried him 50 miles away from the runway he was trying to reach. He joined NASA in 1962 and applied his experience to designing flight simulators for the Gemini and Apollo spacecraft and the lunar landing research vehicle, also known as the Flying Bedstead. He almost died in 1966 in space with the Gemini when he piloted it out of a barrel roll after it docked with the target vehicle Agenda. In 1968, he almost died again when piloting the lunar landing research vehicle on Earth, when he was forced to eject when the craft went spinning out of control. Neil Armstrong was a master engineer as well as an ace pilot. I am, and ever will be, a white Sox pocket protector, nerdy engineer, he said in February of 2000, in one of his very rare public appearances, and I take a substantial amount of pride in the accomplishments of my profession. A man who kept away from cameras... Armstrong went public in 2010 with his concerns about President Barack Obama's space policy that shifted attention away from a return to the moon and emphasises private companies developing spaceships. He testified before Congress and in an email to the Associated Press where he said he had substantial reservations, along with more than two dozen Apollo-era veterans. He signed a letter calling the plan a misguided proposal that forces NASA out of human space operations for the foreseeable future. Neil Armstrong was one of only 12 people to walk on the moon. At the Griffith Observatory in Los Angeles last Saturday, visitors held a minute of silence for Armstrong. His family statement made a simple request for anyone else who wanted to remember him. Honour his example of service, accomplishment and modesty. And the next time you walk outside on a clear night and see the moon smiling down at you, think of Neil Armstrong and give him a wink. The family will be posting updates to his memorial website, neilarmstronginfo.com. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Roger, Twink. Tranquility, we copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot. You can download NASA Sounds from www.nasa.gov slash connect slash sounds. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. 
Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send email to diffusion at 2SCR.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network, into Sydney on 2SCR 107.3, and podcast over the internet on diffusionradio.com. The cane turd already is an infamous invader, continuing to spread across the continent with ever-growing numbers. Since 2005, its movement into the Northern Territory has had a devastating impact on goanna populations. Julianne Popple spoke to Dr. Beata Oviagi from the University of Sydney about this problem. So you were mentioning that there's quite a problem with cane toads poisoning goannas. What is the scale of this problem? So it's pretty bad, as, as we talked about it, or as I mentioned it. So as soon as a goanna tries to bite a cane toad, the toxin from the cane toad will straight away get into the guana and kill the guana. And the guanas are quite curious animals and they are always looking for food. So as soon as they find the toad, they will die from trying to eat the toad. So in the area where we have been monitoring the guanas, 99% of the guanas have already died from trying to feed on the cane toads. So we are getting a bit worried that they might go extinct, which hope it won't happen, but again, in the area where we have been working, the 99% of the guanas have disappeared. At the moment, it's local population extinctions because the cane toads have spread across mostly the northern territory of Australia, but in local places, all the guana species which feed on vertebrates, uh, especially on toads or frogs, they will be affected or they have been affected by the toads. So like uh, there is a guana called the Mertens monitor, which primarily feeds on crabs and um, it lives close to water sources where the cane toads occur. So they would, if they try to feed on the toads, they will go and uh, they will die from biting the toads. Well, I've heard that some species of guana are resilient to cane toad toxin. Why aren't Australian species resistant to cane toad toxin? So the guanas which are resistant to cane toad toxins, they live in, in Africa and Asia, mm-hmm. in areas where they lived together for the cane toads for millions and millions of years. So they have a, spe- a particular gene which makes them resistant to the cane toad toxin. So they co-evolved, we call it co-evolution, co-evolved with uh, prey, so they can feed on these toxic amphibians. Why Australian guanas, they in Australia we don't have any toads, we don't have any toad species with the toxin, toxic paratoid glands. So guanas which live in Australia, they haven't co-evolved with the t- toads, so they are sensitive to toad toxin. And you've been uh, tracking goannas in Australia. Can you tell me a bit about that? You, you've been marking them with names, I've heard. <laughs> yeah, it's quite fun. So we trapped them in an area where we have lots of local people helping us, locating them, or they phone us if they find a goanna in their backyard. Or we have been trapping them on a fish farm where people are you know, breeding fish for uh, human consumption. And they quite often throw the fish carcasses on land so the guanas would come in and feed on those fish. So these people keep phoning us and letting us know if they see any guanas. So we are really grateful for their help. So we started to name the guanas after the people who have been helping us. So we give names like Pete or Bob. Actually the head of the fish farm where we are working, his name is Bob. 
So the the biggest and fattest guana we named after Bob. <laughs> oh, I'm sure he loved that. He loved that. He was really proud of his, his guana and his naming. <laughs> so you've been monitoring these guanas for a number of years now. When did you first started noticing the effect of the cane toads on the populations? So we started to monitor the guanas in 2001 because we knew that the king toads were approaching the study area where we have been working. And the toads arrived in 2005 into our study area. So we had four years before to to count the number of guanas, to monitor them, what they eat, uh, how they move, their movements, their habitat range. And once the toads arrived, unfortunately, we started to see dead guanas without any um, and without any um, injuries or any toxic signs or anything, they would we would just find the guanas dead. And then sometimes we found the toads nearby or a few centimeters away from the head of the guanas, with the bite marks on the toads. So we could see that the toad, uh, sorry, the guana bit the toad, mm-hmm. and the toad probably died from the bite or the pressure of the bite. Where the guana bite from the to- uh, died from the toxin which uh, was emitted by the toads. And what do you think can be done to uh, mitigate the situation? Because I understand that it's basically accepted now that toads are everywhere and its eradication is fairly yeah. impossible. Yeah, unfortunately, I don't think we can do anything about them. If you just think about it, there is a there are several groups in the territory who go out and collect the toads and, mm. and they kill them. But it's like a, a bucket. You taking mm. a, take a bucket of water from the ocean. The toads are reproducing so fast and invading territories so fast that I think we just have to learn to live with them and accept them and learn from them that we shouldn't introduce new species into Australia because we don't really know the consequences. So I think the best thing what we can do is learn from the failure of introduction of invasive species. Speaking of uh, introduction of invasive species, I heard there's a threat to Komodo dragons as well. Yeah, unfortunately there is another toad species called the Bufomalanostictus, which is a, an other toad species, which is just as toxic as the cane toads here in Australia. And as you know, Komodo dragons live on, an, on just on a few islands close to Florence and they are already endangered due to habitat destruction and due to being restricted to, uh, to those islands. So recently this other toad species, the Bufomenostictus, was introduced to nearby islands and they are just as toxic as the cane toads and the Komodo dragons are sensitive to their toxin. So if that toad species gets into the area where Komodo dragons occur, they will feed on them and probably die from the toxin. So we have been in contact with local conservation authorities and trying to warn them to make sure that this toad, this other toad species doesn't get to to the Komodo dragon areas because we might lose the Komodo dragons, they might go extinct. Because their distribution is very restricted, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. So it, there are, uh, their habitats is already restricted. Mm. So and the numbers of Komodo dragons are extremely low. So if we start to lose a few of them to toads, the numbers will drop even more, and we might end up with in- inbreeding problems and and lots of species. So the best way is to make sure the toads are kept off that island. Yeah. That was Dr. Beata Overgee speaking to Julianne Popple about cane toads, D. 
devastating goanna populations and the potential threat to Komodo dragons. Privacy? Computer says no. Australia was settled with convicts, but does that mean we have to be treated like criminals? The Australian Federal Police and intelligence agencies have made a grab for a list of outrageous new powers. The Attorney General Nicola Roxon announced that the legislation wouldn't be passed until after the election. And then very quietly they passed the anti-privacy legislation. And then very quietly they passed the anti-privacy legislation last week. Authorities in Australia may now collect and keep all electronic communication and data from and about all citizens without any warrant from a judge. Warrantless wiretapping. Bugging anyone without having to give a lawful reason. Your phone calls, your GPS locations, your emails, which websites you've browsed, all the photos, documents and videos you've stored or transferred through internet cloud services. The idea is that they store all the data from all the citizens on the off chance that someday some policeman or spy will want to sift through it for evidence of a crime. They don't need a warrant because they trust that the warrants will come in the future. This is a new legal doctrine being used in the US, the UK and Australia. Instead of pre-crime, it's now pre-permission or pre-judicial. Doing something that requires a judge's permission on the trust that someday a judge will allow you to do something normally illegal, that's extreme prejudicial. Right now, in the time that your private information is accumulated and stored, it's a huge draw to hackers and industrial spies and blackmailers. Even worse, their stated reason for rushing this through is so that they can share your private store of electronic documents on location and messages with at least 34 foreign governments, including governments that torture and kill suspects. The government's assurance is that even though there are no legal safeguards to stop you being extradited, tortured and killed by a hostile foreign government, you are protected by a non-binding police guideline that is overridden by this new law. The data must be collected by internet service providers and phone service providers at their own expense with whatever security they decide to spend on it, which may not be much. Phone and internet prices will go up to cover the cost. All the privacy agreements will have to be rewritten. The amended Cybercrime Bill 2011 has passed Parliament, and the upper house of the Senate. It now has only the lower house to pass before it becomes law. Now this isn't the original bill, it's been amended, which has slowed down any analysis of the ways that it's different to the original bill. It seems to have changed the two-year data retention to five years, and from retaining data on everyone by default, to only collecting data on people who are named, but still without permission from a judge, and without any lawful reason being required. And we have to trust that they won't look at your private documents until the judge does get asked, and does give permission. The Americans have already built giant data warehouses that are archiving not only the private messages and documents of all their citizens, but every single document and message and conversation that passes through American computer services, or even foreign services that pass through American computers or wires. If you use Gmail, Hotmail, Google Drive, Facebook or Dropbox, then they have copies of all your private communications. Again, they trust that sometime in the future, they will be allowed legal access to the data that they're already accumulating. The UK is setting out similar data retention laws. Of course, in the US and the EU, you theoretically have legally protected human rights in the Constitution. Australia doesn't have that constitutional protection of human rights. Of course, in theory, these rights would include 
free speech, against being imprisoned without speedy justice and rights not to be tortured. But in the US, they torture their own citizens like Bradley Manning and have imprisoned him for years without charge. In the UK, they imprisoned Australian citizen Julian Assange without charge for over two years, and when the time came for him to appeal to the EU Court of Human Rights, they changed his appeal time from two weeks to zero. Instead of taking refuge in the Australian Embassy, he was forced to take refuge in the Ecuadorian Embassy. Australia does not protect its own citizens. We have privacy laws in Australia, and the new legislation violates them. Yet it's past Parliament and the Upper House of the Senate. A warrant isn't needed for collection of who you texted about what, your emails and the list of places you've been and who you were talking to. Only an intention to get a warrant at some future time is required. When Senator Ludlam pointed out the violation of your right to privacy, he was told by the government he wasn't entitled to privacy because he supported Julian Assange and WikiLeaks. You have to watch what you say or your words will hold you. Take extra care when you speak. One of these days you just might find your foot stuck in your cheek. With just no place to hide your disgrace, you got egg all over your face. have ears is your conscience clear if you've got nothing to hide you've got nothing to fear the walls have ears and the coast isn't clear if you've got nothing to hide you've got nothing to fear and that's all from us this time on diffusion if you'd like to contribute to the show we need more volunteers on diffusion if you're in sydney you can join the team in the studio of 2ser if you're outside Sydney, you could email us a recorded story. You can send email to diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion at 2ser.com. And tell us your thoughts, feelings, and stories. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program was Julianne Popple. I produce Diffusion in the studios of 2SER in Sydney, and Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Looking at the URL, the first thing that sticks out is the colon. And how about a slashing or cutting sound for the slashes? To complete the experience, we might throw in the HTTP and maybe some kind of download sound. www.diffusionradio.com Lachlan Watmore on guitar. Thank <laughs> you.